Welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show, a twice-monthly podcast about culture, theology, and leadership. I'm joined today by guest host J.T. English, who's pastor of the Village Church Institute. Matt's out today uh, doing something somewhere. But on this episode, we'll be talking about life at the village. We've got a new study of beautiful design releasing through Lifeway on April 1st. We'll also be talking uh, a really uh, big conversation with Andrew Wilson. Andrew is a pastor in the U.K., and we're going to cover the gamut with this guy. We're going to talk about all different kinds of stuff. Really looking forward to that conversation. And then we'll end this episode, as always, with Ask TBC. We'll, we will be answering your questions from the past few weeks on our segment, Ask TVC. Uh, we're going to talk here just about the Village Church resources. Now, Life of the Village... Um, the, the Village Church resources is something that we have wanted to give more intentionality towards as a church, uh, wanted just to recognize that we could be proactive or reactive in our resourcing. And just as a stewardship, as a body, it is a desire of the Village Church to be a more resourcing church. And so we've we've talked about things on here on the podcast show from Village 101 to different studies. And so a beautiful design is really one of those studies that uh, working with Lifeway in putting together a nine-week study for small groups and churches and individuals uh, as we look into God's design for men and women. And so, JT, you were here uh, for that. It was a couple of years ago when we did it. And um, I'm just grateful, uh, one, for the opportunity that we have just to continue to resource God's people. And then and just humbled by um, this this stewardship and, and recognizing that it is that. Yeah, I joined staff literally the I think in the, right in the middle of this sermon series. I listened to the podcast right before I joined staff. Got here in the middle of the sermon yeah. series and got to see its conclusion. So to see it uh, kind of come to a culmination here as a resource that's going to help other churches think about gender and relationships uh, is really exciting. And I can say from somebody who's still relatively new to the village, the past two years, I'm excited to see the village church resources kind of kind of culminate here into something that we're thinking intentionally about how we can resource yeah, other churches. Taking more, a more proactive approach. And so, again, that, that resource of beautiful design is available through Lifeway. You can find it at lifeway.com slash beautiful design. It is available on April 1st. Well, we are eager to introduce you to our guest, Andrew Wilson. Andrew is an elder at King's Church in Eastburn, England. He serves uh, as kind of overseeing teaching and training there. Andrew is currently pursuing his PhD in New Testament at King's College in London. He's also the author of several books, Diluted by Dawkins, Incomparable, God Stories. And he also uh, most recently wrote a book, The Life You Never Expected, which he co-authored with, uh, with his wife, Rachel. We're going to talk about that book uh, quite a bit later. He also writes regularly at Think Theology, a great blog that I have uh, benefited from. And he also regularly hosts a podcast uh, called Mere Fidelity, which is a wonderful podcast you might want to check out as well. The first thing we want to ask you, Andrew, is just give us kind of the big picture and overview of your ministry context there in the UK. Yeah, sure. So um, so I'm a a full-time pastor in a church in a town of about 100,000 people called Eastbourne, which is on the south coast of England. And the church is a, I, I guess, a sort of 25-year-old warehouse, charismatic, reformed evangelical church of about 900 people in three sites. We have uh, in two in two towns which are near each other. So most of the people are in Eastbourne. There's a nearby town called Seaford, which has another congregation in it. And we have three meetings in Eastbourne in two different locations. Um, but I am also moving my job, so I'm, although... At the moment, that's my job. From September, I'm going to be taking the job as teaching pastor at King's Church in London, um, which is a 
in British terms, quite, quite a big church, about 1,400 people, which one of the large, we one of the largest churches in the country, probably. Um, and very diverse, sort of white minority kind of context there, which I'm really excited about as well. Um, and that's up in South London. And I'll be doing a similar job there. But I'm, so I'm teaching pastor in the church in now, and I'll be moving to do a teaching pastor role in the, in the church in London as well. Um, and both churches very similar in terms of background, quite, um, yeah, charismatic, reformed evangelical-ish kind of, well, reformed-ish evangelical charismatic. <laughs> I, think pretty, I think pretty similar in many ways from what I can gather of you guys, um, but on a much, much smaller scale given that it's England. Well, let's talk about that. When you say that King's is a charismatic church, and and you're often associated with the charismatic movement, especially in the UK, can you let's talk about that a little bit? What what does it mean yeah, sure. for you guys for for King's to be charismatic? How does that look practically at King's Church? Yeah, sure. I, I think in our in our context, to say charismatic probably means not. I mean, it could mean a lot of things to different people, but I think when people use it here. It, it's generally meaning spiritual, all spiritual gifts continue for today. So it would in some ways refer to a theological position that the gifts are ongoing. Sure. But the way that you tell would be by the fact that in, in the meetings there would probably be expected to be uh, spiritual gifts being used by people in the, in the congregation as well as on the stage, um, and that we would expect people to have an experiential dynamic to the Christian faith whereby they were encountering and living in the good of the presence of the Holy Spirit day to day. They were pursuing spiritual gifts, and so that passages like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 would be things we want to teach people to do. So actually pursue spiritual gifts and use them like this and with these kind of parameters and so on. Um, an expectation that God speaks today and that it's not on the same level as Scripture, but that people should pursue hearing God and prophesying over one another, and that would then percolate through to the way people pray and the way people sing and quite a sort of high-energy, high high experiential emphasis in corporate worship times. Um, I think that's probably what the word means here. I get the sense that in the States it's got a slightly more, well, in many circles, got a slightly more pejorative connotation and implies big hair, shiny god channel <laughs> you know prosperity gospel leaning way and and we i when i first encountered that i was quite surprised but i knew that right. wasn't always true but it was there was almost a, a, a slight nervousness about using the word in some circles um which again i know may not be true for you but it it, it, it seemed to be true in pockets whereas in the uk it's quite a mainstream thing most churches there are churches that are anti-charismatic but there aren't really aren't very many in the uk and so the mainstream evangelical feel is sort of charismatic light in, in the UK. Um, and we're sort of somewhere on that spectrum, but probably trying to be a bit more charismatic, medium <laughs> to medium to heavy, but without it getting wacky. So that, that's, I think, that's probably what it means for us. One thing I'd love to hear you speak to a little bit, Andrew, just related to kind of uh, something you just said there is something that I really liked about your answer. And I think that is a strength of the, it's a strength of the charismatic movement is that the, the it's highly participatory, uh, not just for the people that are on the stage, yeah. but also for the people in the congregation. It's, it's not a performance on the stage, which, which the congregation is asked to watch, but it's, it's kind of a performance that they're all engaging in, in terms of God's kind of drama of redemption that's happening there in the congregation. Everybody is an equal participant. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Yes, I, I think that I think probably that emerges slightly from our, our context as well. I think probably a house church movement in the nineteen seventies and eighties is what there's birth churches like the one the ones the one I'm in now and the one I'm moving to, and a very sort of um, you know everybody probably started off in sitting rooms, people sitting around and all sharing and then praying and expecting God could speak through anybody and everybody 
could contribute. And then as the churches have grown, it's more been a question of managing an expectation that God will speak through everybody in a way that is as edifying as possible to the whole. Mm. Because obviously some people will want to say, just say what's on the top of their head without it necessarily being edifying all the time. And so managing that, but probably coming from a place where the expectation is that lots of people will have things to bring and that the church is a body and that the church that eyes and hands and feet and noses and lungs and everything else will serve one another whereas I, I think and I don't, can't possibly generalize about this but I think that in a very front-led sort of context where the only times you have church meetings all the ministry has been done by one person or two people or something it, it can feel much more like there is one servant or even a priest and lots of people who are receiving ministry and obviously the way we do things i still preach you know i preach more than anybody else in my church and i am doing much more of that content than most people and most people in the church never get to preach so there are, there are some ways in which that of course leadership responsibility still continues to exist sure. entirely as i think it did in the new testament but with an expectation that everybody in the church is serving and using their gifts which don't simply mean turning up and funding it um but and, and it's all for the purpose of building up the community, right? It's for the purpose of, that's, that's Paul's yeah, emphasis and, continually in First Corinthians. Exactly. It's, it's everybody, it's everyone needing, needing everybody else. And I think a, a properly charismatic vision of church life doesn't focus just on the sort of, if you like, the spirit, the most obviously spiritual gifts, if I can put that word in quotes. Um, so it's not just, you know, we're all about speaking in languages or, or prophesying. Actually, the whole diversity of gifts that Paul uses, some of which sound very ordinary, are all charismata. They're all gifts to be used for the edification of the body, and they're something for everybody in the church to pursue so that you're function, functioning properly, organically, as a community of people who, who require one another to be there, otherwise it doesn't work. Um, and I think there's probably some more front-led models in which that's just not the case. I love that. I, I, I love how it, it does put the emphasis on the body and the participation of the body in in this yeah. gathering, uh, both both weekly, but then throughout the week, that, that we all have something to bring as God has uh, endowed us with gifts and, and by his sovereign decree. And so it's super encouraging to hear that. I do want to lift the context up just a bit higher. We've talked about King's Church, but I want to talk about the UK in general. Over here in the States, I, I think it's pretty common for us to think uh, as, as you guys are further down the road of progression and uh, modernity and secularism and all of these things, that there's, there's this sense in which we think, man, there must be this really dark cloud looming over Europe, and, and God's Spirit has left that, uh, left that land, and it was once a beacon of light, and now it's forsaken. I, I would love for you just to speak to uh, us and encourage us in how, how is the Lord moving in the UK? Yeah. What, are you, what are you seeing, not only just through King's Church, but across the broader landscape of evangelicalism in the UK? Yeah, I think the UK is probably, evangelicalism in the UK has been stronger and more robust than evangelicalism in many other European countries for quite a while, as I, as I understand it, based on my interactions with, and we have a fair few people from other European nations in, in the church anyway. Um, so I think in some ways, like in so many areas actually, Britain sits in between America and Europe um, in, in lots of, you know, it's true economically and politically and so on as well, but I think it's true ecclesiologically. Um, because I think there is a, there's actually quite a, we do have a state church, obviously we have a, a Church of England, and that would be what most people in the nation thought of when somebody said the church, they would think of a, an Anglican church um, near them. But I think what the, the, the evangelical movement, obviously the, the heritage from 50 years back or so, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, those, those kind of, J.R. Packer, those kinds of guys, 
Um, and we're probably still living a lot on the, the second or third generation down from that. So there are major um, evangelical churches through, up and down the country, and, and the biggest churches in almost every town would be evangelical, and, they would, and we're the biggest church in our town, but there would be a lot of quite strong, growing evangelical and often charismatic churches as well, or everywhere in the UK. And we've had, you know, histories going right the way back to the Wesleys and Whitfields and so on of large church planting movements as well. So there's a lot of that. I think the thing that's the, probably the most interesting developments at the moment, I think, are um, so immigration is means that our, uh, in, our cities are often more Christian than our suburbs or our rural areas, which is a, a surprise, I think. That's fascinating. In the States because of particularly African immigration. Um, so we've got some very large... London is... I think, I think the percentage of people who go to church in London is higher than it is almost anywhere else in the UK. I've seen stats to that effect, and I, I think there would be boroughs which are very obviously quite Christian in, in, the, in lots of ways in London, because of many because of immigration. So that's been that's quite an interesting and exciting development. Um, I think a, a sense of a bit of a shakeout of the of the church, where being forced to take a, a stand or take a view on a few cultural hot potato issues, and this was before gay marriage was a thing, um, but, you know, even in the last 10 or 15 years, just where you landed on a few key hot potato issues meant that the churches found each other who had historically been kind of a loggerhead. So a church like mine, because charismatic, would be seen as being a very different slice of the evangelical world to a reformed conservative Bible-preaching church. Um, and we've realized how much we have in common in the last 15 years to the point that I was at an event two weeks ago with some very conservative Anglican brothers who are coming up and saying, we're so grateful for the New Frontiers and what you're doing because you're so, you're so with us. You, you stand with us. It's really valuable having your voice. And I think, well, that, that would never have happened 20, 30 years ago. It just wasn't the way that things So were let me jump in and ask you this. What, what were those hot potato issues that, that kind of well, some did of them, flesh I think this out? Probably the first, the first one, um, I, mean, I don't know, because I'm kind of old enough <laughs> to, to know necessarily where it was 15 years ago. I think probably some of them came down, there was the doctrine of the cross was under fire a lot, um, particularly the way the atonement functioned, the sub penal substitutionary model of the atonement, 10, 12 years ago, became quite a big British, uh, I say debate, I mean, my, a lot of evangelical churches just said, no, we're absolutely there, but there were some who were saying, no, we're not. And so there was quite a strong debate about that, and so some people found themselves on the same side of the debate that were used to being on opposite sides. And then I think the way that the church uh, stood on the authority of Scripture or not, which then was became very important, which then became catalyzed by the whole gay marriage thing, um, and just how you're going to talk about sexuality. And I, th- and I think the temptation or the push, the firm push in some circles to, to cave on that, which then takes with it really how you're going to handle the authority of Scripture in the vast majority of cases comes with the, the gay issue as well. So you then, the whole way you're communicating, uh, the thread begins to be unpicked and it it kind of awkwardly goes. Whereas for those who are saying, no, we're we're not moving on on this because this is the word of God and we're going to stay where we've always been and be as loving and gracious as we can be, but also say we believe certain things are true and and that's going to affect the way we counsel people on these things, I think then meant that people who were in that camp suddenly found each other going, oh, right, you're here as well. Oh, wow, you guys are here. And Hmm. I think that's actually been very encouraging. So that's more of an an inward you know, the way the British church scene is. Right, right. And, uh, and, and that's also, there's lots of, you know, church planting and mission going on as well, of course, and, and as I mentioned, immigration. So it, I think it is quite an exciting time, but I don't, don't believe everything you hear about Europe being dead and gone. 
I think, although I do think that we are not necessarily representative of continental ex-Roman Catholic Europe, I think it is much, much harder. What I'm saying would not be true if you lived in Italy or Spain, for instance. So uh, there is a, a very different perspective in, in other European nations. I want to tease something out you just said there a minute ago, thinking specifically about um, how perhaps evangelicals who would have found themselves to be in different parts of evangelicalism that weren't necessarily relating much one to another are now relating much more closely together. I wonder if part of that's because uh, they're beginning to learn how to act like a minority. Uh, I read a, I read an article today that just popped up on my Twitter feed uh, that was in The Spectator. It was talking about how British Christians must start to think and act like a minority by Tim Stanley. I'm not sure if you saw the article. Yeah, Tim Stanley. It was just a couple of days ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I just saw it today. But yeah, I think it was just published yesterday perhaps where he argues is kind of his main point is that Christians for the first time are beginning – not for the first time, uh, but for the first time in our lifetimes are starting to learn how to act like a minority. And those, that, those are things that are, are very, I think, relatable to our context, one of the, the village church's friends, Russell Moore, he's the president of the ERLC, has said before that uh, the former generation was the moral majority, was the terminology that was used here, but now we're learning uh, what it's like to have to be a prophetic minority. That changes the way you do ministry. It changes the way you try to shape and form a congregation. And so I'd be interested to hear, if, do you agree kind of with this basic argument that Christians are going to have to learn what it's like to be a minority? And if so, how do you begin to change that, that kind of mindset amongst the people in a congregation? Wow, <laughs> that's a, yeah, a great question. I, I, I agree with what Tim Stanley said, but I think I, I, we've been there for a long time. So with nonconformist background, I think I think he speaks as a Catholic. I think, right, yeah. and I think establishment churches are have perhaps have taken longer to, I would say, wake up to the reality that Christianity is in a small minority because a census in the UK would still say. Any, depending on the sense or on the question, anywhere between 40 and 70% of the country are still Christian. Well, that, if you actually part of pastoring a church, you know that that's absolute nonsense. So the number of people who are actually in a church worshipping Jesus on a Sunday in, in the town is, no, is more like, you know, somewhere between 4 and 7% of the population rather than between 40 and 70%. Yeah. And so you function like that, and you just think, oh, okay, if I started a conversation with 100 people on the street in my town, I would expect 90 of them to have varying degrees of lack of comprehension or even hostility towards Christianity, and maybe 10 of them to be saying, yeah, I kind of believe that, or I definitely believe that. And so I think you function as a minority just because you know you are. I think the established church is a bit more, I, 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 would, I don't want to be condescending at all, but I think can be a little bit late to the party on that one. And so when I read Russell's book um, last year, I found myself, agree, I agreed with it all from beginning to end in, in many ways in its diagnosis for America. But I think I found myself thinking at times, wow, I'm just amazed this needs to be said because it looks to me like that's true in the States with very little limited knowledge, certainly in the parts of the States I've been to, which admittedly are more in the North and East. Um, and it's been true in Britain for 30, 40, 50 years. So I was just, I, I suppose I think, yes, this is all true, and I'm, I'm glad someone's saying it if it's not widely believed. But I, my read of it, just from picking up American newspapers and reading and watching American TV, is just to be surprised that anybody doesn't think Christianity is in a in a minority, although I know that in Dallas that may well be nothing like as true as it is elsewhere. Well, um, I think it's becoming increasing. I think it's becoming increasingly true. I think one of the things that we're talking about sometimes as a staff and as we're trying to think about with our leaders and the people that are here at the village is thinking about how 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, whatever time frame you want to give it, someone gained social capital. Uh, by being an evangelical. And we're entering a season where you might actually lose social capital uh, because you identify as an evangelical or with the gospel of Jesus. So something I would love to hear you speak on just real briefly is is 
how how what similarities and differences or perhaps how could we learn from maybe the UK being a couple decades or generation ahead of us? How yeah. can we tell how can we best care for our people who might be entering a season of losing social capital because they identify themselves as a Christian? Yeah, I mean, we likewise have been very helped by people who are much further down that track than we are. So I think when you interact with people who are in parts of the world where it's genuinely very difficult to be a Christian, where you're likely to have less property, fewer job opportunities, or right. even have your life at risk, I, I think in some ways that's very helpful just as an, an outer marker. So I find time with Middle Eastern Christians very helpful because they are putting me further down mm. in terms of my expectations and also in my my trust in the goodness of God in preserving and being good to his people, even when a lot of the things that we have got used to, the privileges we've got used to are taken away. That's right. Um, and we're not there yet, but I think that's been really helpful. So I think, I think there's some, some obvious things in terms of where, the, where the, the, the flashpoints are and knowing that your people are, it, it's not just... It's not just leaders, and it's not just people in other parts of the nation who are facing them. But it's every so the, the the woman who I was talking to just a few days ago about what do I do when my daughters have got to go into school and they've got a, a line on the blackboard and they've all got to mark themselves on a continuum from male to female. Um, how where do you feel wow. you are? That's wow. the thing. I've got to start speaking into. Okay, so how do I how do I teach? the ordinary men and women in the church, what they do when their teenagers, teenage kids face that, which they are. And how do I, you know, what kinds of things would I want people my age to know about that, you know, a way to handle you know, many of the things that I suppose you would, social media, but just sort of thinking through issues of faith in public life. And, you know, should, when, when the diversity guy, the diversity's policy guy in our church is a big prison guard uh, who then gets asked, can you, you've got to lead our, uh, representation of the Pride March. You know, what what should he do, and how is he supposed to handle that? It's a, and actually, just beginning to understand these are the things we have to start teaching into, and very not not making hold you know big deal out of it, but just saying. So these are some of the examples. It's like you would teach on how you integrate faith and work. You're thinking about how you integrate faith and work with an eye to the fact that some of the challenges people are facing are different from what they were ten years ago, um, and just incorporating that into the way you do discipleship and the way you the way you preach and the way you communicate the things that come up in, in a life group or a small group discussion and so on are, are just more like that. So I think there's that. And um, and as I say, I think connecting probably in two directions, which have helped me, connecting back hundreds of years to people who were, were in, in periods of time where they, they say things with a, a freshness and bracing clarity that people in our culture are perhaps not used to um, because they were assuming so much Christianity. You think there's something quite refreshing about that. So I want to hear that sort of voice from 100, 200, 500 years back at the same time as hearing people who are in an oppressed minority where they might well be killed for what they're doing. Um, and that's obviously through connections with Middle Eastern churches or whatever. And I find those two outer markers extremely helpful in thinking, right, I've got to hold to that level of clarity and conviction of what I believe, so I'm not going to get bludgeoned into fear and silence, at the same time as recognizing that I don't have any rights to any of these privileges. And if this is a question of, you know, and deny Christ or lose your life, I know where I've made my bed on that one, mm-hmm. um, through interacting with people who are a bit more persecuted. So I think those are probably two helpful voices to have speaking into your life, I guess. That's fantastic. That is I was, good. I was, there was an uh, article on uh, the Gospel Coalition this week talking about um, 
how it's important. You know, we're obviously entering a, a political season, an election season about uh, about electing a president. And there was an article about why we should read Augustine's City of God in the middle of an election oh, season. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what you're talking about there is how important it is to have the universal church speaking into these situations. And we could talk about absolutely. this for a long, long time. And I do absolutely appreciate this conversation and one that uh, we'll need to be having and helping one another in. I do want to change the conversation just a little bit or actually a lot and, and bring it down from the, the cultural challenges that the church is facing in the United States and the UK and really uh, bring it right down, Andrew, into your home and, and uh, really speak personally uh, about a book that you wrote with your wife uh, called The Life You Never Expected. And as you reflected on your experience as parents and parents of two uh, children with special needs. And so can you tell us a little bit about the book and then uh, maybe provide us some context about uh, about your kiddos. What does life look like with them and, and what are some of the particular challenges yeah, that sure. you and Rachel are we, facing? Um, so Rachel and I have uh, two children with a third one coming in six weeks or eight weeks or something like that. Congratulations. Um, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, and so my son Zeke is seven and my daughter Anna is five, nearly six. And they both have regressive, regressive autism, which means autism that goes backwards, um, which was diagnosed at around the age of three in both of them, although they've been regressing for about a year before that. Mm. Um, my daughter also has epilepsy and my son also has ADHD, so they, they manifest their autism in kind of opposite ways. She withdraws and he bounces off the walls, I suppose that would be an easy way of saying it. Um, wow. And so they were quite normal until the age of, they seem to be developing okay until the age of about two and then somewhere between two and three, or in my daughter's case, two and four, um, they started losing skills. So on a, on a sometimes daily basis, they would just not be able to do something they were able to do the previous day and they went backwards and backwards for my son's case about nine months and my daughter's about 18. Um, and that was extremely painful and, and very just horrible to watch and very, very difficult to live with in a very up, sort of upsetting time and you had to back out of everything that you were doing um, in, li- in life and reappraise everything really. Mm. Like, can we still do this and how do we, how do we keep our heads above water with this going on because obviously there's a lot of parenting demands and sort of practical needs you have as well as um, sort of emotionally a bit of a, take a bit of a battering as many parents do with their kids um, and so anyway my, my son since has made I mean they've both made good progress since then my son particularly has, has got back to a point where he's doing extremely well so he's well ahead of where he was before he regressed and he would if you met him now you would think he was quite a hyperactive seven year old boy and you might not if you didn't see him uh, flapping or whatever it was, you might not realize he was autistic initially. And you would after a while, but you might not straight away. My daughter is, is more complex. Um, they're both at special needs school, um, and which has been fantastic for them. Uh, we're British, so we have <laughs> we have state, state healthcare, state education, which makes a huge difference when it comes to things like that. And we're very well looked after um, for free, which is wonderful. But it has been a, a lot of challenge, a big challenge. And so we felt having got out of the the worst of that and seeing the children both going upwards rather than backwards, we, we felt like there were some things that we could share as an experience, that the really things that we had felt and experienced and found God in through that journey that we wanted to try and write about while it was almost still going on. So we right. wrote it, well, the book, wrote this book, The Life, I think it's coming out in America, it's called The Life We Never Expected. It's coming out with Crossway in June, I think. Um, and it, it was a, we just wanted to write it while it was still raw and while it was still going on rather than waiting until 20 years on by which time some of the edges had softened and just express something of what we'd learned about um, holding on to God in lament and tragedy and 
learning to pray again and learning to re rewire your life and your marriage and how to think about the goodness of God and how to hope and how to wait for breakthrough and some much more practical considerations, more specifically relating to special needs kids and lots of things. So we we sort of wrote a book which ends up not primarily, not even just being about special needs, but really about how you handle curveballs being thrown at you in life when the life you expected turns out not to be what you have. So I want, I want you to speak to that for, for a second. One of the chapters in the book kind of talks about the, that curveballs or unmet expectations. You have this brilliant analogy about oranges and chocolate, and it, and it just uh, it really struck me because – I know this sounds awful. I didn't even realize you'd read it. So that's, <laughs> I know, yeah. that's really kind of you to say that. But I thought you were asking like with a kind of, hey, I have no idea what this is about. So thank no, you. no, no. I, I actually <laughs> want you to speak specifically to that chapter because I think it, it, there's really a rawness and a kind of authenticity that you and your wife talk about. And you even say – we feel guilty about talking about our unmet expectations because we would have preferred yeah. it. We, we, we would have preferred our kids to not have autism, right? We didn't. We yeah. didn't wish this. Can yeah. You? So, so that I mean, we we were helped immeasurably by friends of ours who who've actually. He's an elder with me on our team here. Who's uh, they're, but they're significantly older, sort of twenty twenty five years older than us. Who have a, a four children, one of whom has Down syndrome, and they were incredibly helpful to us. And one of the things that really helped us was this picture that, that she, our friend Anne, gave us. She said. It's like discovering your children have special needs is like being given an orange. Um, and she said, it, it's imagine that you're at a dinner party and everybody, do you have chocolate oranges in the States? Are they a thing? Terry's chocolate orange? We, we have uh, them when friends from the UK yeah. bring them over. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah okay. So like, <laughs> chocolate oranges, Cadbury's Marmite, along those things you can't buy in America. Oh, and cheese. Right. <laughs> um, God bless the queen. <laughs> but then you have cinnamon. So just to throw that out there, we yes. don't have cinnamon here, really. Yeah, um, yeah so... So there's a, it's like a chocolate orange made up of multiple chocolate segments and really orange flavored. It's lovely. And everybody is, you're all at dinner and everyone gets given one of these wrapped and they're all opening theirs and eating chocolate and you get given a, a wrapped spherical thing and you open it and it's an actual orange. It's a, like a, you know, tangy, bitter, fruity thing rather than a chocolate thing. And you're looking at it thinking, oh, that's weird. Everybody else has got, got what, a chocolate one and that's what I want is. And I've now been given a, an actual orange and it's a bit of a pain to open and the acid stuff goes in your eye and it sort of the bits are being picked out of your teeth for the next few hours and it isn't really what I wanted and everybody else is enjoying their chocolate and kind of not really noticing even that I haven't got what they've got but for me this isn't I know that it's good in many ways and it's probably it might in the end be better for me but it's it's still not what I wanted it's still not the thing that I saw everyone else enjoying and I've been caught out by my expectation at this point and I have to admit that as much as I know that there are many benefits to it it isn't what I had planned it isn't what I'd hoped for. The dream I had of my life unfolding did not involve this little twist at the stage. And I've just got to be honest about the fact that it isn't what I wanted. And hearing that from them and then seeing it worked out in the lives of others with special needs children, and then it almost gave us permission, I think, to be able to grieve something at the same time as celebrating the beauty and individuality and wonder of our children. Mm. And I think sometimes what happens is that you feel like you're almost, if you know what I mean, betraying the person that your child is by acting as if, or by admitting that you didn't want them to have a particular condition or need. Um, and I think it's perhaps in our case, it's more obvious because they regressed. You could actually see them losing some of the skills they had. There's no, you can't really dress it up and say, this is just, this is just a quirk of individuality. I think in some forms of autism, you could easily make that case and people don't feel like they're dis disadvantaged at all, which is wonderful. But I think with ours, you can say, no, they, yesterday she could do this and now she can't do it. And 
this is debilitating and to admit that that's sad actually it's very liberating because it yeah. enables you to go wow and i think then of course that rolls across to all kinds of other areas in life where you say yeah actually i might have to admit that i didn't want to i don't know didn't want to be single or i didn't want my mum to get this condition at this age or i didn't want my children to have such and such and just to be able to admit that this is sad and then to be able to say right okay now how do i find somewhere the grace and mercy and hope of god in the midst of it well, what I think is really helpful about about the book and even the analogy that you just gave uh, with the chocolate oranges and the oranges that all of us have have met face to face expectations or unmet expectations. We have dealt with that, and uh, obviously, you, you and your your wife Rachel have dealt with that in some pretty profound and poignant ways. Uh, but but there's not one of us that hasn't had something that we wished would would be different. And in the midst of all right. of that. Uh, I think you're giving us permission again and even showing us through the scriptures that that God expects his people to lament and God expects his people to Absolutely. come to him in that. And, you know, I think one thing that we're learning here and trying to introduce even more to our people, uh, and some of that is through song and some through prayer, but is the biblical reality of lament, of just sitting in sitting in the sadness and not and that sadness is not an affront to God's character or sovereignty uh, it is it is in in the scriptures it's replete with examples of God's people just sitting broken and lamenting and that is a form of very acceptable worship unto the Lord yes oh and and that's been it, it's it's so when you it, it actually it cheers me do you do it anyway but it's just good to see how much of it there isn't. I think at one point I said, when I was 25, I didn't know why so many of the Psalms were about the Now I'm 35, and I don't know why so many of them are about something else. Mm. Um, and I think there is that, wow, there's something quite releasing about seeing, as you say, worship to God through being sad and saying, God, you've got to help me here. Wow. Let me ask you this, just uh, because you, you do have the unique kind of role where you're, you're both a dad and a pastor. And so uh, as, as some of our listeners are in, are in ministry and pastoral leadership, what, based on your experience, what are some ways that you think the church uh, can better minister to children and parents uh, with children of special needs? Oh, um, my wife would be better on this, I think. <laughs> I, we'll have her on. I, I think... Um, I think being, I think actually asking the, asking the question of people who have children with special needs, what's it like and how can we help? If that's an appropriate question, depending on the scale and, and you, know, you may not be in a position to help, but if you can, um, because obviously the category of special needs just is almost infinitely broad and the things that, there are some common things you can do, I think. Um, we things we found of people, you know, one-to-one help for our children has been extremely extremely important in helping integrate them at a particular point in their life into things that the church is doing and uh, having other people around who also have special needs children and know what to do about it um, and a sense of understanding, a sense of permission to do and sound, do, to do eccentric things in public context, um, but also a recognition that you won't be able to participate in everything that other people do as, even as parents, because you're, you're, it may be that other people would be fine with your children being there, but the children might not be fine with being there, so you have to back out of certain things. So there's lots of things like that we could say specifics, but I think probably the more undergirding principle is being able to talk and ask and, and say, hey, what's it like? And what are the specific challenges that you're seeing in at the moment that we might be able to pray, you, pray with you about or pray for you about or help you with? 
because I think my my list of that I've just given there of four or five things that have really helped us might actually be very different from that yeah, of somebody who's go got Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis or any number of other things. Um, but I think if you if you know if you've got a bit of trust with somebody and you ask them what's it like and how can we help, then you, most people will give you a very good answer to that. And you'll realize quickly that the assumptions, you, I mean, the number of people who early on say, oh, yeah, but a lot of autistic people are very high-functioning. Have you seen Rain Man? That kind of thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, but, but it's, not not always, <laughs> it's not always like Rain Man. But, it, but actually what helps is then when they say, what is it like? Instead of thinking, oh, I know what that is. Um, I, I've run that risk. I don't know what autism is like for a great number of other people. And I don't mm. need to be completely deconstructing of every you know, every commonality with these conditions, of course. But if I met somebody with, when I do meet people with autism, I almost have to ask them or ask their parents or the carers, so what's it like for him? How does she respond? What are the things that she particularly zeroes in on or struggles with or whatever? Um, and I think that, probably that question, more than any key, um, I mean, in some ways that question is the key, I suppose. I, I just how, how, what's it like for you and how might we be able to help? Hey Andrew, uh, just I know we've covered a lot uh, on the show today. We have we've talked about King's Church, we've talked about uh, charismatic, we've talked about uh, the the cultural challenges that the UK is facing, and compared and contrasted that to the United States, and then uh, took a hard turn all the way to special needs and and being a parent of special needs children. And so, man, on behalf of the Village Church and just uh, JT and I, just both want to thank you for being on the show and and just want to affirm. Uh, all that you guys are doing in the UK through King's Church, and just pray God's richest blessings oh, on you. you. So, so thank you and so much I for being on. Well, just in this final twenty seconds, you I'm bet. so grateful for you guys as well. I don't just mean in this conversation, but the things that you guys say and produce and distribute and put out online for free and so on has, is a blessing to many, many people that you will never meet. Um, and I'm saying that not just on my own behalf, but on the behalf of many people in the UK who benefited from sermons and clips and downloads and tweets and many other things you put out there. So thank you for what you're doing to serve churches where there may well not be 20,000 people in a community, but you're really serving them. And so thank you. Well, I appreciate that. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much. Okay, now it's time for our Ask TVC segment. This is where we have folks, listeners, asking questions via the hashtag AskTVC. I'm going to throw the first question to you, JT. This comes from Brant Miranda, and that is at Brat, un, Brat sorry, Brant, at uh, Brant underscore Miranda. Brant says this, uh, John seven fifty three through 8, 11 is not supported by the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And how do you respond to that? So the question here is is one about textual criticism. It's about manuscripts. And and uh, in the book of John, those verses, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, is not supported by the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. What do we think about that? Yeah, so he just asks, how do we respond? I think we respond with recognition. He's, yep. he's right. Uh, and the great thing about this question is, is all of our Bibles recognize this also. So I'm looking even at my, my uh, Bible app on my phone, and it says uh, when it gets to this passage, the earliest manuscripts do not include. And so uh, evangelical uh, scholars and Bible scholars have been thinking about uh, what the text of the Bible is for centuries, uh, really since the, since the, the, the text came together uh, in its earliest authorship. And so 
Uh, what I want to make abundantly clear is that this isn't shocking or surprising right. to the church or surprising to uh, to scholars. This is this is something we've been aware of. Uh, this is certainly a story that I think a lot of us have uh, a tendency to like because it just reminds us of God's forgiveness of sin. And so we can preach God's forgiveness from texts like this and trust that God has forgiven us as sinners uh, in texts like this, while at the same time recognizing the Bible's authority in our lives and that, and that a recognition that this might not have been in the earliest manuscripts actually doesn't indict um, us to a view that the Bible isn't authoritative or reliable or trustworthy. It actually should remind us how trustworthy it is because we we have some of the earliest manuscripts and just a plethora of manuscripts from the earliest centuries that, that give us a confidence in what Scripture actually contains. So I'm sure that some people are listening to this. May, may, it may be a little jarring, may freak them out. They don't right. quite know. Now, what category uh, do I file this away in? So help us think uh, about this first. What are we talking about here when we're talking about manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts? Mm-hmm. What are the categories for those who may want to uh, dive in a little bit more or just kind of know? Now, people actually study this. What What is this? Yeah, there's an entire field of kind of early text uh, text um, um, study. Uh, in, in a technical term, what the church does not have is the autographs. And we use that term to talk about the first manuscripts. We don't Meaning know the, the one that Paul that actually ori- Yes, the, what he the originally wrote. We don't have that. We don't have any what, – what Matthew put to paper, what right. John put to paper in this instance. But we do have some of the earliest transmissions of those earliest manuscripts. And just a plethora – compared to other ancient literary sources, the Bible just – it's almost an embarrassment of riches of what we do have compared to, for example, uh, the Odyssey or other other early uh, uh, manuscripts and texts. So so I think what, – what, what uh, what I would want the church to know and, and Christians to know is that we can trust the Bible. There, they, you don't need to be an expert in this topic. You don't have to dig in every single uh, text like this. You can just know I trust Scripture because it's the Word of God and what what the Bible says. God says. Amen. The next question comes from Lorenzo Smith at Smith Lorenzo. He says this: Many of us pastors assume TVC's methods work and are worth following. I want to know what you're doing that isn't working. <laughs> well, I, Lorenzo, I can assure you this. I'll, I'll take a stab at this question. Uh, just about every Tuesday uh, when we meet as elders and then into our executive staff meeting and into campus meetings, uh, I feel like I have a list of things that aren't working. Uh, at some level, uh, Tuesday can be a day where I am uh, frustrated and think, oh, this whole thing's broken. Everything's messed up, um, which isn't true. Uh, the Lord is graciously working here like he's working in in churches all across not only Texas, but the, literally the world, uh, as we just heard in our conversation uh, with Andrew. But I'll give you two, what I think are really big things uh, that the elders of the village church put as initiatives that we needed to, if you will, uh, allow me to say, get better in. And the first one is this. We had a big missions initiative. And the analogy that we used with our missions initiative was just this. Given given the platform, given the resources, given all that's before us as a church, we really didn't feel like we were punching in our weight class uh, as it related to as it relates to missions and church planting. And so as we think about a stewardship relationship and what stewardship means is is all that God has entrusted to us, we are then stewarding those things uh, for his name and his fame and his renown. And as we thought about uh, missions, uh, particularly the sending of missionaries, the raising up of church planters, um, we weren't quite happy uh, with, with what we were uh, producing there. Not, not that 
those who have been sent out. We're, we're thrilled with them, uh, but really feel like uh, God has more for us in that. And we weren't uh, being faithful with some of the stewardship uh, in that particular area as it relates to missions and church planning. And so we just uh, walked through that initiative. It was a big, long initiative, uh, uh, evaluating that the last probably six months or so, just presented this past week to the elders, and we'll be bringing those recommendations before our staff here shortly. And so, um, yeah, that's that's one area. And then the one that we've talked about here on the show before is, is women in ministry. It is a value that we have and desire to see women flourish and ministry here at the Village Church. And another one of those initiatives is a complementarian initiative. And on that complementarian initiative, really what we've been doing, again, over the past six months, JT, you've been a key driver in this, has been just going back to the text, Mm -hmm. going back to the text and, and doing the hard, long, slow, exegetical work. Uh, of of digging into the scriptures. It's been, um, we, we've had a lot of conversations. We've had a lot of long meetings mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and read a ton of, of literature and, and resources out there. And so um, as we think about women in ministry, this is an area where we we really think there's more for us here right. in this particular area and, and, and more for our women here. And not just for the women uh, who are on our staff, but for the little girls in our congregation uh, who will one day grow up and, and be looking to examples, not only men, but also women. And so, uh, Lorenzo, those are two uh, that I could give you. Uh, give me a call and I can give you a list of others, uh, but that's all we'll talk about here. And then finally, the last question uh, comes from Brad Anderson. Brad says this, how crucial is it to have a solid understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation and throughout creation? So how crucial is it to have a solid understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation and throughout creation? JT? Yeah, I'll take a stab at this. So, I mean, I think, I think the, if I, if I, I think I know what what Brad's getting at here. He's trying to just understand how does God's sovereignty play out both as creator and as the one who saves, and how crucial is that to understanding uh, for for a disciple of Jesus Christ? I I think it's absolutely essential. Understanding that God is the one who is creator, just having the category that he is the one who creates, he's the one who is sovereign and providential over all things, including our salvation, I think is I think it's it's certainly essential to my relationship with God and how I understand what He's doing in the world. Uh, if He is not sovereign over all things, um, the, the, our future hope, resurrection, life with Christ forever is in jeopardy. Yeah, right. And so that makes salvation in jeopardy. So uh, one of my friends says it this way: He says the arc of history is long, but it points towards Jesus Christ. And that's what that's that's the phrase that always comes to mind when I think about the relationship between uh, God being the Creator, the one who saves us, and the one who's pointing all of history to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of life's busyness and when it feels like God isn't sovereign, it's in moments like that when we when we point to God's sovereignty and know and can trust that he's moving history towards the purpose of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, JT, thanks for being on the show. Enjoyed having you on. Glad to be here. Yeah. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find those details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. You can look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. Our next episode, we'll have on with us author and speaker Eric Metaxas. Really looking forward to this as we'll be discussing everything from history and social justice to politics and abortion. If you have a question, let us know, not only for Matt or myself, but also for Eric. Uh, Let us know on social media by using the hashtag AskTBC. We'll be answering a handful every episode. See you next time. God bless.